This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. When I was a child, Manchester City taught me a few very valuable life lessons. First, they taught me to expect the worst and never be surprised, which has definitely come in handy away from the football pitch in recent years. But second, they also taught me that you don't always get what you deserve and that life just isn't fair. They dished that lesson out again on New Year's Day, but it wasn't the City fans in the away end at the Emirates doing the learning this time. This was one for the Arsenal fans who watched their side outplay the champions for large spells before leaving with nothing. We don't always get what we deserve. Welcome to today's Blue Moon podcast, where we'll reflect on what must be the first smash and grab victory City have done in a long, long, long time. It's not often that they don't control games anymore, and it's even rare of them to not control a game and then go on to win it. So we'll be looking at the key talking points from that match. As Nathan Ake joins the club of players who have cleared spectacularly off the line in recent years, I know a snappier title is probably needed there, uh, we're going to take a look back at those who have pulled off similar remarkable feats. We'll cast an eye ahead to Friday's FA Cup trip to Swindon as well. I'm David Mooney. With me this week, I've got City fan Richard Burns. Hello, David. And I've got the man with the ridiculous job title. It's the Manchester City fan brands editor at Rich PLC, Dom Farrell. Hello, it's ridiculous. Wait till you hear about the premise. (laughs) Excellent, (laughs) excellent. Uh, Richard, it's been a while. Are you well? Happy New Year? Yes, Happy New Year. I think we're just on the cusp of uh, being able to say that without it being too late, aren't we? So, Happy New Year to you, David. It's, it's Um, It's the first show after New Year. I'll allow it on that basis. Oh, of course it is, yeah. Well, then that sounds a ridiculous thing for me to have said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> leave it in or don't, whatever. Um, I'm well, David, thank you. How are you? Excellent. I'm, I, I'm, I'm fine, mate. I can't, uh, can't complain. City are, doing, City are going great. Um, Dom, I said in the intro there, uh, it was a, a, a little bit of an undeserved victory for City, wasn't it? Hand on heart, did City get away with one? Yeah, but at the same time, because um, I thought Arsenal were brilliant first half in particular, but... Um, and I'm sure we'll get on to the decisions, but as much as Arsenal deserves from out of the game, it was also they were the architects of their own downfall. Well, Gabriel was the architect of their, their downfall with a completely ludicrous red card. That yeah. I think without that, they probably still going to win the game because City really weren't at it at all. But um, yeah, um, a very enjoyable win in the end. But um, yeah, not, not the best performance. But um, I suppose at this time, it said that coming on the back of the Brentford game coming on the back of a busy schedule and, you know, City are allowed to be a bit tired and dra- drained at this time of the season too. Um, yeah, it felt like a very, very big three three points and a big weekend in the title race. Yeah, Richard, uh, especially 11 v 11, um, why why do you think City found it so difficult? Was it simply that Arsenal's pressing was very intelligent and just gave City absolutely no time on the ball? Or was there a case that, that players were a bit not switched on at times, generally a bit below par, a bit of fatigue in there as well? City, City have had a busy Christmas period, as, as Dom said. Arsenal had had the midweek off. Um, well, I'll do a bit of classic fence-sitting and say Excellent. that it, it, <laughs> um, it's both, isn't it? I mean, it's I think the reality of um, any game these days where... Um, where City are the second best team for significant portions of any game usually requires City to have not been at their best, doesn't it? Because City are the best team in the country. It's been proven time and time again by some distance. Um, let's not let's not open that can of worms again. <laughs> um, okay, in my opinion, City are the best <laughs> team in the country, and um, things like points totals and league titles suggest that as, as evidence to me. Yes, yeah. um, <laughs> but. But also for City to be the second best team in a game, 
the opposition usually have to have played pretty well as well. And they usually have to have figured something out that most teams don't. And they usually have to have applied themselves at a level above what they normally do. Um, and that isn't to um, to suggest Arsenal are, are anything other than a good team because their form recently has been very good. They're clearly improving. Um, and they, I think they clearly have like a semblance of a plan that's forming now and coming together. And all of that, um, going into that game, I think, made it look like it was going to be a difficult game for City. And so it proved Arsenal were, were tactically brilliant until they shot themselves in the foot. Um, I thought City struggled for space in the game. I thought they struggled to breathe in the game. Every time Arsenal went forward, I was worried. I was convinced they were going to score from the set pieces they were getting. I was convinced every time they got the ball in the middle that it was going to go out wide and they were going to get behind us. And, you know, City's fullbacks and City's defence aren't too shabby these days. So that's a great, um, a great credit to Arsenal that they could make it feel like that. Obviously, the um, the crowd were up, which I think uh, I think helps in a game like that. It was um, it was really really good from Arsenal, and then within that, um, I think City looked like they were struggling to work it out a little bit. And um, you know, individually, players were below par. I think it was about thirty five minutes into the game before, and, and genuinely before I remembered that Mares was playing. Um, it, it was just one of those, and you, and you have to go through that. It's you can't be the best team all the time, um, every game or, or every minute of every game. It's it's okay. Um, it was a it was a really really good test. I'm on that. I'm very glad City got through because for a long time it didn't look like they would. Yeah, I was going to say Dom as well. It doesn't really matter when you win the game if you if you come away with the points. Who cares how it, how you did it in the end? Um, and now the the title picture as well. Uh, City ten points clear of Chelsea, eleven points clear of Liverpool, possibly only eight depending on my game in hand. Um, but I mean, like your gut feeling now is that this is this is really in City's control, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, and I think this maybe explains some of the sort of you know. Outside of the bubble of Bert, the maybe not too <laughs> um, enthusiastic reactions about this is that because City have got onto one of those rumbling runs again. It's eleven wins in a row now in the league. It was eight, eighteen was it in twenty eight, seventeen, eighteen? It was fourteen at the end of the season when they pipped Liverpool. There was a huge twenty odd game winning run last season. It's you know this isn't a fluke, and this isn't just the very big amounts of money that have been spent. This is like incredibly good coaching and incredibly good footballers feeding into that. And, um, you know, we, we think, we think back to sort of um, the aftermath of the Champions League final and the sort of the, the sense of an unhappy camp around then and Chelsea win that game and go and sign Lukaku. And that's going to be their next step forward. And Liverpool were back on it at the start of this season. And for all that City are now in the eyes of many, despite the amount of games left to go, these inevitable champions that simply can't be stopped. Um, at the start of this season, they were a team who were had numerous weaknesses and could be stopped. Well, there, there, was, a gra- and- there was a graphic made, wasn't there, about three or four weeks into the season um, that said this is going to be a great title race and it had the top four without City in it. It was uh, Chelsea, Liverpool... Um, uh, I can't remember who else, but United. Oh, it might just been the top three and United in there as well, and City were just absent. And it's like, really? like, like you, you, you're four, or five games in, and this is the graphic you're producing. But now suddenly, there was no like. I don't, I don't understand how that can be the position in August, and then suddenly by January, City with the lead that they've got, that's that that's upsetting everybody. Do you know what I mean? I mean, who did that graphic? Was that in crayons? Um, <laughs> but, no, it, it, it's. So, so yeah, the, there are Chelsea and Liverpool are both exceptional teams, um, but part of the reason City have pulled away is those sides have dropped points where City haven't. Um, but yeah, it, it has gone from 
and, and, and this is a mark of how good Guardiola is and how good that group of players is, that it's gone from a team that in August looked to have several weaknesses, no striker and no left-back. They still have no striker and no, left, no natural left-back. Um, but it's it's looking like it might become a procession. And for them to have turned that situation, you think back to the win at Stamford Bridge, which has to, I think if this season goes the way it's looking like it will do, will be looked upon as a massive, massive turning point. Was that the day? Um, City, did City go top that day for the first time? I don't know. I, think I, can't even, that, I, I can't remember if they passed Chelsea with that win or not. I don't know, but it was City definitely went into that game with good with good reason as slight underdogs, and we're now in a situation where it's how can you possibly compete with this team? So it's I appreciate you know we are and you know I'm pot calling the kettle here in my job and we're all hot take central and all the rest of it, but. I think for us to have gone from a position where City were vulnerable to two great challenges to those great challenges have played out this brilliant game on Sunday, that 2-2 draw at Stamford Bridge. And, oh, it's a shame that can't be a title decided because you simply can't beat Manchester City. It's like, well, that that wasn't the chat around City four or five months ago. And I think it's immense credit to the players, in particular to Guardiola, that that's the situation we're in again. Yeah, I mean the, the the other thing, Richard. Does does the Arsenal display? I know it's only one game, and I know it's like I, I know we, we we always try not to talk about individual games proving more than than they're worth. But does that display by Arsenal prove that teams can compete with City? I know they lost, but they lost because of their own failings. Yeah, I think I think it's a fair point, and uh, and, and your caveat is a right one that it doesn't um, that that one game in itself. It, it, it doesn't say anything for the bigger picture of what um, of what the Premier League season looks like. But then, until midway through last season, maybe just just past the halfway point, maybe when Liverpool suddenly started um, turning in defeat after defeat at home when they hadn't lost at home for three, four seasons. Like, there's a point at which things. Like things change, don't they? Like winning runs come to an end, and when you're in them, as uh, Dom has spoken about, the, the the ridiculous winning runs City have a habit of putting together season upon season. The defeat is unexpected when it comes because you feel like you're going to win forever, um, and then and then it ends, and then it's well, okay, we have to win the next one, and and it things are cyclical i suppose is um is what i'm trying to get at and and city's greatness at the moment won't last forever it is aided by uh, the finances but games like this do prove that there's a fallibility to them they're not invincible and eventually you will be able to extrapolate that um sort of further and, and wider and it'll mean that City might be out of contention for league titles for a couple of seasons. If they don't get the appointment after Pep right, that could well happen. Um, City's sort of freakish era at the moment and the ridiculous points totals and the stupid winning runs are really because they've got Pep Guardiola as manager, which is is as important as the money now in being able to attract top players. That wasn't the case when we first got taken over, of course. You had to tempt players with um, with things other than just the the football that was an offer because it wasn't great at that point. You had to um, clearly pay a lot. But now we've got a history of winning titles. We've got the, I think, the best coach in the world, one of the best coaches of all time, if not the best coach of all time. Players want to play for that. So um, 
none of that happens without the money <clears throat> yes it might be boring for everybody else but um in small world sort of small picture crystal palace can beat us southampton can come to the etihad and get a draw and sometimes it that is the spark that um that sort of changes things across the season we have these turning points and um and maybe it'll encourage teams to attack city um to attack City a little bit more and maybe they won't have it all their own way in the second half of the season if the Arsenal game becomes a blueprint for other teams. You never quite know. Yeah, Dom, the, the one thing I would say is, like, as, as City fans, we've won three titles in the last four. Um, why why do we care what people say? <sighs> um, I think you and I have talked about this previously, David, that I think for a certain generation of City fan, which I think is the age of the people on this podcast and probably people a little bit younger and certainly people older, um, I think a lot of it goes back to those formative experiences of the 1990s and touring the divisions. And there was a time when City were just, well, completely shit. And <laughs> the, 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 the only thing to recommend about City was, God, your fans are brilliant. Your fans turn up in, in their droves to Division 2. It's the same reason that like MTC chat riles people now. Basically, the, a part of your identity as City fan at that time was people like us and people liked being liked. And there was a little bit of an extension of that right after the takeover that the Aguero moment happens and just for all it's like, it's mad just as as a sporting moment of just unbelievable grandeur. People like that and it was beating Ferguson's Man United so people like that as well. So we got a bit of a pass from when people really should have probably started disliking us. But I I think there's an awful lot of people that, and it's fine, it's probably very, very human. I think we liked being liked and so now, whereas I don't know, and I don't, I don't wish to generalise fan bases, but I, I kind of have to for the purpose of the conversation. If you're a United or a Liverpool fan, you don't really care what the people think about you because you've got all this Man United and Liverpool historical fluff and things you attach to everything. It means more, etc. Um, MUFC, the religion, and other banners. <laughs> City don't have that. Um, we were. We liked being liked, so I think this is an adjust. This is an adjustment for a lot of people. I think there's a younger generation of City fans coming coming through now who will be just like those big club fans and will like we don't care what anyone thinks. But I think there are a lot of City fans that still do care about what people think because we did used to care because it was a thing we sort of attached to. It was that it was sort of our sense of worth as a football club that people said we were good when you know various terrible players were playing. So. I think it's all bound up in that is why City fans seem to get riled more than the fans of the other big clubs now. And that might be nonsense, but that's my sort of crack theory on it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I, I do buy into it because I, I, I do think, I think there's something in it. I do, because I, 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 I sit there and I catch myself going, well, can you not appreciate the great football that we're playing? And then I, I think, actually, they're not City fans. They don't care. It's not for them. They they care yeah. that they can beat City. And that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, let's, let's actually focus on the Arsenal game, Richard. I was really keen not to make this too much about <laughs> VAR. Um, because ultimately... All right, Jake Humphries. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, because I mean, I'm, I'm taking a different approach, Dom, because Jake, Jake Humphrey seemed to go down the line of, I can't get my head around this whatsoever. This is all nonsense. Whereas I'm, Are you, I mean, are you I, sitting in the comfy chair as well? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm coming at this, Richard, from the angle of, well, the Edison and Bernardo incidents, aren't they just absolutely textbook VAR decisions? 
Well, yeah, I would say so. Um, I think... I think you can almost take a step back from this and say that how you like, because we have to have the bar conversation. Um, it's, it's, it's unavoidable in this context now. You can take a step back and say, like, you don't necessarily have to agree with the decisions to say that VAR served its purpose and was applied correctly because it did and it was. The like I, personally, and, and maybe this is easy to say because I'm a City fan and the, the decisions favoured us, I thought both decisions were right. That said, I wouldn't have had um, a huge argument or, or I, you know, I wouldn't have been massively annoyed if the Edison incident had been given as a foul because I think it's perfectly reasonable that the referee could have seen that as a foul. And then if you accept that that's reasonable... Bar probably couldn't have looked at it and say that was a clear and obvious error, and yeah, that it, wouldn't, is the cri- it wouldn't have been overturned had he given it. Yeah, yeah, that is the criteria, and like I think everybody knows that that's the criteria. We hear that phrase, God knows how many times, on literally every televised football match. So um, yeah, VAR worked there because it didn't. There wasn't a suggestion that the referee should review the decision because of the criteria of VAR. Like whether you like that or not. It doesn't worked. matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, and I mean, then the, sa- the, the same for the other incident. I thought it was a penalty because there were two fouls in one. Um, I know that um, from our respective Twitter feeds that me and Dom, I think, both noticed that Jaco was waving that it wasn't a foul whilst he was making the foul, which would <laughs> usually indicate that it is a foul. That's a guilty, <laughs> a guilty conscience um, personified there. Uh, so... Yeah, I, again, I thought that was a clear and obvious error, so I would say that, that VAR works. But certainly, you can't fault it for, for suggesting that the referee look at that again, and that's what it's there to do. The key, I think, here, Dom, is that there's a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding that I, I saw in a lot of the Arsenal-focused interviews at the, week, at the weekend. Um, I think Aaron Ramsdale said it. I think the Arsenal uh, assistant said it, because um, th- th- there was the suggestion... Oh well, if the referees looked at one, he has to look at the other, and that's the thing that the, the screen is not there for a second look. It's it's basically Stuart Atwell missed something in City's penalty that he didn't miss in Arsenal's penalty, isn't it? No, and it, yeah, it, it's this it's this whole faux confusion thing that's just it makes it impossible to have any sort of sensible conversation about these decisions because, I mean, I don't know. Uh, there are certain. Inter- I think that with the thing with pitch side interviews after the game, it's a short period of time, and you're not really there to paxman someone. But there are certain Sky interviews that might get on people's wick at times, who will respond to something the manager says at the conversation. And I just think in that situation when Ramsdale is going, "Oh, there's no. All we want is consistency. All we want is consistency." By the way, which is the worst phrase around refereeing going. Um, when he says that, there's no consistency. At that point, the interviewer sh- could hopefully say, "Well, actually." The second decision is one that goes to the monitor because the VAR has spotted something that the referee hasn't seen. The first one, the VAR goes, what have you seen? Atwell says, I think Edison's played the ball. The VAR isn't there to adjudicate on what he thinks about that. It's, it's if the referee has, hasn't seen something the VAR has. So, yeah, there's no need to call for consistency there. I, I would agree. If the, the Edison one could get given as a penalty, I think... With this whole thing of because people get are getting really sort of antsy about the clear and obvious thing now and what people go to the monitor for and not. As a cricket fan, which is tremendous at the moment, um, obviously technology's been in cricket for years, and there's a thing of umpires' call of basically 
to keep it very, very simple on LBW seasons, if they are marginal, there is like sort of a traffic light system. If, if the ball is clipping the stumps, it's if the if the umpire gave it out on the field, they stick with it. If um, it was given not out, they stick with it. Um, that Edison decision is where they've brought in an element of umpires called to VAR. I think it's fine. Otherwise, you will be at the monitor for every single decision. Um, and because it was a marginal one, Stuart Atwell's given that. The VAR has looked at it, and Stuart Atwell's version of events is in line with what the VAR has seen. It doesn't matter whether the VAR thinks Edison has played the ball or not, because Stuart Atwell has a correct view of the version of events, they stick with his decision. Yeah. On the second one, Stuart Atwell has has done a big refusal on the first foul, which actually I think was more of a foul than the shirt pull, if I'm honest, because Bernardo's on his way down. But they've had that conversation, and the VAR's gone, there's a shirt pull. Have you seen that? He's gone, no. That's why he's got to look at the monitor. And... Okay, I don't, I've probably not explained that particularly clearly, and it wouldn't have been as a, a good a piece of broadcasting as BT Sport thought they were doing. <laughs> but when everyone's sitting around going, I'm confused, there's no consistency, it's like we just need to have a 30 second flesh out of that's why all that happened. Stuart, you can have issues, valid issues with Stuart Atwell's management of the game overall, I think. And I think he's a referee who, bless him, seems to struggle quite a lot in these sort of games. But in terms of those two incidents, it's quite, dare I say it, clear and obvious why it's played out the way it has. Yeah. Just on, on the Bernardo incident, Richard, before we move on, um, it was a penalty. Let's, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting it wasn't. Um, but does Bernardo need to dive to get it? And in which case, why does he have to dive to get it? Um, well, regretfully, um, and people will know over the years my stance on... On diving, I would rather see a City player booked for outright diving or simulation than, than City winning that way. But there is a difference between outright diving or forcing contact or, or, or cheating and, and, and making there be a foul where there isn't one to um, exaggerating a, a foul to make sure that the referee sees it. And... and and I guess anybody other than a City fan listening to me say that will probably think it sounds like mealy-mouthed hypocrisy, and, and maybe it is. But we've seen countless incidents over the years where a player, I mean, Sterling's a great one for this, where they get booted, they get pushed, they get, um, you, you know, sort of the opponents all over them. But because they don't go down, they don't get a decision and and. and because a penalty is such like a it's such a potentially big turning point in a game and hands such a massive advantage to um, to the attacking team that it's almost like you it can only be a foul if you go down and I, I I'm absolutely convinced that that is what Bernardo is doing but or was doing there yeah. um, and that's why he did have to go down um, I would absolutely again agree with Dom that the first incident is is more of a foul because he puts his leg I don't know why this why the shirt pull became um, oh, well I do know because Dom actually has just addressed it really really clearly <laughs> but um, it, there should have been much more made of the fact that there is a foul made 
before before the shirt pull anyway. Yeah. Um, Xhaka's leg is right across Bernardo after the ball is past him, and um, that that does impede him and uh, obstruct him. So it's like it's a, it's a really clear foul happens before the shirt pull. The shirt pull is very much the icing on that cake. I think. Yeah, Dom. Just on the the coverage of it as well. Just before we finish, um, I, I find it fascinating the way that the controversy was whipped up around it because ultimately, when you listen to what uh, was said by the commentary team and the co-commentators on that game. They actually agreed with all the decisions that were given. And yet, at the end of the game, you would be led to believe that they didn't have a clue what was going on. Yeah, and it's like, oh, oh we hope all the talk after this about isn't about VAR. They lied because they know it, it just makes it makes entertaining television when everyone sort of gets on a high horse about it. But yeah, they did seem to agree with all the decisions. Martin Keown even agreed with Rodri not being punished for sending poor old Gabriel Martinelli up in the air like a ragdoll. He was like, you, know, you, you worry about, oh, Arsenal bias. Keown thought an Arsenal player getting sent skyward by a <laughs> falling over six foot four midfielder. Uh, was fine. So I actually thought when I saw that incident, you know, I actually thought he's given a corner here because. But I actually think the the decision is a goal kick. I think Rodri plays it against Martinelli, <laughs> and he's and because it's not a free kick, and he's gone well. I've got to give Arsenal something after this. He's given him uh, a corner. I, th- I thought Martinelli was going out for a corner at one point <laughs> after that impact. Um, yeah, it was. It was still a bit silly, wasn't it? I, th- I think. I mean, I don't know if I want to pass over Richard because I think you might want to come off your your long run about some of the BT stuff. But it's just like, I just. It was the thing of like, obviously you've got the absolute elation of a last minute winner and um, the most mild mannered man in football who lived in his university halls. Great example, <laughs> upstanding citizen Rodri went full on. Do you know what? I play for Diego, Diego Simeone for a year. I'm going to be a massive bastard here. Yeah. And, just lost. and that was just Mr. Shit out here. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. And you're you're on a sort of you know it feels great when you've watched your team do that. And it's like oh. All oh, right, have we got to sit down and listen to everyone be performative? Obviously, you haven't got to, you can turn it off. But have we got to sit down to listen to everyone be performatively angry about things that are quite simple? It's like, oh, it's just, it's a bit tiring, isn't it? Yeah, Richard, I I can sense you're uh, eager to, uh, to to weigh in on this. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Um, I mean, I'm going to try and um, be um, reasonably succinct with this um, because I could. I mean, it's a well-worn rant for me, to be honest, but it particularly applies in this in this circumstance. To me, right, people pay a lot of money for their sports TV packages, whether it's Sky, whether it's BT, whatever else, okay? And I believe, pretentious as this might sound, that a broadcaster then has a duty to fill the, the the analyst roles and the co-commentator roles with competent people, okay? And and, and I would say, <laughs> it, it, I, okay. The, so, sub, the subtext to that is fantastic already, but carry on. <laughs> so, but I, like, I genuinely believe that, right? And, and because, like, I, I enjoy football in, watching football in two different ways. I love going to football when I could go to more away games than I currently can. I used to do it, and, and being at a live game was great. But... I'm like, I think I talk okay about football, but I, I'm not an expert. There's loads that goes on in a game that, that I don't see and that um, the people who've played the game or people who just see tactics a bit better than I do um, or a lot better than I do, that they can explain that to me and that can be really engaging and I can learn something from watching a game from these people that I'm paying a decent amount of money to every month. And instead, what we were presented with in and it, 
unfortunately, and it's the same with those two co-commentators every time they commentate. But in this game in particular, we were treated to people who did not understand the subject that they were talking about because they kept mis-explaining VAR. They were questioning each other on it, which is, I mean, if there's a greater uh, example of the blind leading the blind, then, I, then I've not seen it. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, it's, and it, it was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. You had McManaman asking Keown, why didn't they review, uh, or why didn't VAR, as you've already alluded to, why didn't VAR look at... Um, at the Edison Odegaard incident and then Martin Keown explaining why he didn't know and then McManaman getting angry because Martin Keown didn't know well you're wrong because VAR did do its job they did look at it it didn't get referred VAR looked at it what do you think VAR is it isn't the referee on the pitch VAR isn't the TV screen and it's like I can't say this without sounding overly serious or pretentious but to me in the roles that they have as analysts and and people commentating on what is happening, it's it's essentially a dereliction of their duty because they just didn't do that. They spoke about something else, and like they are the people who are commentating in real time. So nobody in the world, or at least the broadcasters in this country, nobody drives the conversation that is going to follow that game more than they do, yeah. and they drove it to an absolutely absurd. Um, degree of analysis of something that actually was done right and that they could have explained it and I I believe it was more than just performative I think it was um, they didn't understand how VAR works and they have a responsibility to if me or Dom had turned up and mis-explained how VAR works here you David would have corrected us because this is your product and this is your show that you put out for an audience and I know when I come on here that if I get stuff wrong, then like not like not like a head teacher or anything, but that you can correct me on that. And that's, no, it is, I, it is like a head teacher. Don't 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 misinterpret <laughs> the way I do things. I am like a head teacher. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like I'm, I said, I was going to be succinct, and hopefully I've not repeated myself too much. So there's an element of being succinct. Maybe it's not quite the right word, but it's. I just think that they have a responsibility to their viewers to treat them with a bit of respect. And when you present people who don't understand their subject matter, who are presumably earning decent money to do so, um, I, I, I think it's I think it's terrible. Um, and I think it's it's just really, really bad for what it means for um, conversation around football yeah. in this country. But here we are. It's taken up a good section of our show and um to use the modern parlance, it's lived rent-free in my head for a good number of days now. Yeah, my, so my advice it's is done its job, uh, hasn't it? Yeah, my, my <laughs> advice is listen to the Blue Moon podcast instead. Can't go wrong with that, I think. Uh, but then again, I would say that. Now, uh, one of the incidents in the Arsenal game that has been glossed over because of the other talking points in the game is a great clearance by Nathan Ake. Uh, who picked Jamie Pollock for this match? Seriously. Anyway, uh, it's not the first goal-saving <laughs> intervention that City have pulled off recently. I've been having a look at some of the best in the last couple of years. I feel so close to you right now, it's a force field. The one we all remember was by John Stones. I tried to just take everything, to be honest, because he was coming back to his own goal and I spotted the opportunity. That's the centre-back speaking to Sky Sports in January 2019. City had just beaten Liverpool 2-1 at the Etihad to get themselves back into that season's title race. But while the score was 0-0, Stones cleared off the line superbly. I heard it's... Um, you know, quite tight, so, yeah. 1.1 centimetres. 
yeah, how my Phillips just didn't go over the line, to be honest. And, Great defending. Yeah. It was a clearance that saved Stones' blushes. Sadio Mane's shot had hit the base of the post and was squirming back towards the Liverpool forward. Stones got there first and tried to clear, but instead could only hit it straight at Edison, and that sent it back towards the empty net. Cleared it off the line, you know, it's, it's one of those things, I think it was... Um, you see it all the time where a keeper shouted and defender comes and clears it and you know I spotted the opportunity and he was coming back towards his goal as I said and tried to take him, him and the ball but deflected off him and just had to re react quickly. It kept the score at nil-nil and City went on to win twice taking the lead. Had City fallen behind after a good start it may have been a different outcome at full time. Those sort of things in games can, can change games and, and realise what kind of situation you're in. You know in the first half we, we set a great tempo. Uh, moved the ball quickly and created some great chances and, and we wanted to carry that on from first half into the second. That victory turned out to be crucial in that season's title race as City won the league by a point over Liverpool. It was those two teams contesting the Community Shield the following August too and with the score at 1-1 in the second half in stoppage time, Liverpool nearly stole the win. Yeah, I mean I'm a defender, I stopped goals so you know, I'm glad I could help the team out this time. These helped me out all the time by scoring. So um, that one's for them. That was Kyle Walker's reaction to BT Sports after the game. He'd cleared the ball off the line from under his own crossbar with a bicycle kick. That was after Mo Salah's header had looped over Claudio Bravo. It had seemed destined for the net until the fullback sprinted back and acrobatically booted it away. City then won 5-4 on penalties. It's the first trophy you can win. Uh, for me, growing up, the you know the community shield was a big one. It starts off the season. We can start off our momentum and hopefully we can replicate what we did last season. Unfortunately, City couldn't do what they'd done the year before. They were out of the title race by Christmas and, although the pandemic delayed the inevitable, Liverpool were crowned champions when City lost at Stamford Bridge at the end of June. But when Kyle Walker again cleared off the line, the score was still 1-1. Here behind is Pulisic again. Fernandinho couldn't get there. Pulisic off the line. Abraham, he can turn it in either. And the referee's watched dozen bars. He didn't go over the line. It's Christian Pulisic doing everything right. He thinks he's scored. Look at Kyle Walker. Look at that. Look at that. Chelsea would score a penalty later in the game to seal the win, but Walker wasn't to know how the match would go at that time. By our count, that makes Nathan Ake's clearance on New Year's Day the fourth time a City player has got back impressively to save a goal on the line during Pep Guardiola's reign. As we've seen in the past, sometimes those fine margins can be the difference when everything's added up at the end of the season. Hi, this is Mike Summerby, and you're listening to Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. A look there at some of the more recent goal line clearances by City players. Uh, Dom, just, I mean, one thing that I know you're itching about on this, because I didn't include Rodri at Anfield, um, and you don't think that's a, that's a, a you, th you think that's a proper goal line clearance? It's obviously not right on the goal line. We're not talking John Stones millimetres, 11 millimetres, not that Jurgen Klopp likes to remember it. Um, <laughs> but it is, in terms of sort of massive last-ditch interventions, I think the Rodri one is worthy of talking about in the middle of all them. Just basically so half the category isn't all Kyle Walker. But um, yeah, I think I think Rodri's 
if it's not in that category, it's certainly an honourable mention for him. Yeah, uh, Richard, of them, uh, Stones against Liverpool, Walker against Liverpool, uh, Walker against Chelsea and Ake at Arsenal at the weekend. Any uh, any preference? Which one Which one would you say was the best one you've seen? Ah, so... Because there's, there's a correct answer to this. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had two different answers, um, depending on whether you're going to ask which is my favourite and which was the best. The best is Walker in the Community Shield yeah. against Liverpool. Um, but my favourite is Stones against Liverpool, because without that, there was no um, there was no title in that amazing season. And the Community Shield just, um, you know... there's nothing you can do or that could happen in that game that would make it uh, or that would elevate its importance. It was nice to win it. It was... um it made the game more entertaining, but Stones, um, for the, the sheer drama of it um, and how that went on to impact the rest of the season. Um, you know, if, if he doesn't do that, Liverpool might walk away with the title that year. So will always be my favourite. It was, it was ridiculous. Is the correct answer. I surprised so many people. I, I did a poll on Twitter. I surprised so many people pick Stones as the best one. And it's clearly, it's, it's a good one. Don't get me wrong. It's not, but it's not the best, not the best by yet by far. The fact that Walker does an overhead kick on the line, that it just has to be the best for me. Right, so let's have a look at uh, the FA Cup game coming this Friday evening. Uh, City are going to Swindon for the first time in uh, about well, about 20 years. Uh, last time they met, it was uh, City 2, Swindon nil in the FA Cup third round, the same stage, uh, back in 2002. The last time City went to the county ground uh, was um, back all the way in 99-2000 uh, that season. Uh, they won 2-0 that day, Gota and Kennedy with the goals. Um, let's bring in a, a guest from the opposition. Dan Hunt is from the Loath Strangers podcast. Hi, Dan. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us on. Uh, Dev, I mean, my first question, Dan, is um, why? where does the name The Loath Strangers come from? Um, because uh, I, 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 in terms of nicknames, I always thought you were The Robins. Is that not true? Uh, we are The Robins. I'd, I'd r- much rather we were called The Railway Men, owing to our uh, industrial history. But uh, The Loath Strangers name comes from, uh, I think the author is uh, Nick Hornby, an Arsenal fan, wrote a book called Fever Pitch, and um, he's talking about one of his earliest memories being Swindon Town winning the League Cup at Wembley 3-1 against Arsenal. And for the first time in his life, he properly loathed strangers looking ah. at the Swindon fans across <laughs> the uh, the divide at Wembley. So, yeah, that is um, a lovely bit of backstory to a, a podcast name. Um, I love it. I, I just it, like it's, it. it's so much more entertaining than Blue Moon. Yeah, that's just a song we all sing. So that, like, <laughs> at least at least you've got something something interesting there. Um, how are things going for Swindon right now? Fifth in in League Two. You just beat Northampton by uh, by quite a score, five two. How's it how's it going? Yeah, well, I think you need to put Swindon's season in the context of where we were back in early July, where we were still under the previous owner. Things were very close to going pop. For Swindon, I'm, I'm not being overly dramatic. We had some, you know, literally seven professionals signed on. We had a, an owner in waiting, trying to get the legal process through to actually take over the club. Um, you had a very active supporters trust, of which I was a board member up until about six months ago. And we had a right battle to get rid of um, a complete rotter, really. Yeah. Um I, I don't think I'm getting myself in any legal trouble for saying <laughs> that. Um, so new owner came in and things happened very quickly. New manager, Ben Garner, who, um, you know, raised a few eyebrows because his, his previous managerial job had been at Bristol Rovers and it hadn't gone very well. But he is, or has been, a, a very sound appointment. The director of football above him, Ben Chorley. Um, the recruitment's been excellent. Um 
you know, hastily put together squad, but there's some quality there, if not depth. Uh, and then above above that, you know, the new chief executive of the whole club, Rob Angus, one of my friends from the uh, Supporters Trust, was actually appointed as chief exec, and uh, that was a very popular move. So in that context, where we are, fifth in League Two, off the back of the, the 5-2 win against Northampton on New Year's Day, uh, that, that actually put a stop to a lip, probably the, the biggest blip we've had this year, a couple of defeats and then a nil-nil draw against Stevenage. Yeah, so we needed that result on New Year's Day just to really kick things back in their life, hoping for a big January in the transfer market and then, you know, have a full tilt at finishing in the top three of, of League Two and going back up to League One where we really should be. And that's not me being you know, big-headed, but Swindon Town should not be in the fourth tier of English football. And I, I hope you'll see that on Friday night with the the full ground, 14,500 people there. You'll see, you know, there is an element of sleeping giant about Swindon. Not giant in your sense, but, you know, we are a proud football town and we should be doing a heck of a lot better than we're doing. Yeah. Um, Richard, when you when you come to FA Cup ties like this one uh, for City, it's like you, you think like golfing class and all that sort of stuff and, and, and the absolute difference between top of the Premier League and League, League Two. You do think, though, don't you? Like in the back of your mind, City fan, banana skin. It's, it's, it, you can't help it, can you? No, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the really good things about City at the moment, obviously under under Pep, is that they've got a manager who treats these games with the um, with all due respect to the opposition. He will know Swindon inside out, I'm sure, and that is what it takes because Swindon obviously have the the home advantage, which is really really big. Um, as has just been mentioned, you can guarantee that there's going to be a great atmosphere. I mean, Friday night under the lights for an FA Cup game, although there's um, a, a lot of issues with this game being on a Friday night for travelling fans, but um, skipping past that, it does make for um, for a great occasion. Um, it's, um, you know, you... I think you you wary of being um, patronising sometimes of of how you think about lower league opposition and and falling into that trap of thinking oh it'd be their sort of biggest game of the season and and obviously that's not for us to say but in terms of the quality of opposition that are going there, City are going to be the best opponents that they'll see this year and that brings with it a certain um, cachet to the game, doesn't it? And um and so with all that in mind, forgetting just the the quality that Swindon will have because they're a professional football team. Like, anything can happen. We've seen it with City. We were run close last year by Cheltenham. Um, we had a, I remember a really tricky game against Newport a few years ago. Obviously, we've got our history with Wigan, who um, I still wouldn't fancy us to beat at any point, <laughs> anytime soon. It's, um, you know, it's, it, it's hard not to say, oh, well, it's, it's hard not to sound patronising when you say, well, of course, they've got a chance. But, at the end of the day, for as much as City will be massive favourites, it's a game of 11 men v 11 men and there's absolutely nothing to be taken for granted and of course it's it's there's the risk of getting beat so it has to be taken seriously. Yeah, Dom, Richard was saying there about how, how seriously Guardiola will take it. Uh, I mean, there, there is, uh, there's, there's two schools of thought, thought here because, uh, you know, a lot of fans will be calling for the likes of Cole Palmer, you know, James McAtee, uh, Josh Wilson-Esperan to come in and, and actually uh, actually start the game. Um, but I, I just wonder if Guardiola will look at it and go, you know, the last time we played was New Year's Day. The next time we play is a week away. He, he, he might go very strong for this game, mightn't he? Yeah, he's big on his... Um... The play's been rhythm, is the phrase he uses all the time. And obviously, that's integral to how City plays. So, yeah, I would expect a strong side. I think 
I think there's kind of a little bit of a sliding scale on how much you respect the FA Cup and you should pick a strong team to respect the FA Cup. But then um, sometimes Guardiola pays it too much respect and beats Rotherham 7-0 and that's disrespectful. I think that's how it works. Um, but yeah, I, I, w- I would expect a fairly strong team. I think I think a Cole Palmer start is probably in the offing. James McAtee perhaps, but it won't be, say, for example... Uh, like the game against Wickham earlier in the season, which was a little bit circumstances dictated that the, the back four was all teenagers from the youth team there and Romeo Lavia in front of them as well, an 18-year-old holding midfield. It will be, um, unfortunately from Dan's point of view, probably a, a fair, fair bit of a stronger team than that, I would expect, for the, for the sort of the rhythm thing that you mentioned. But um, yeah, it's um, January looks kind of sparse, just strangely sparse, City, because there isn't a two-legged uh, League Cup semi-final in there. So yeah, I think he will be wanting to get players out, get 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 some minutes in their legs, and yeah, I, I expect a fairly strong team. Yeah, Dan, when it when it comes to uh, facing City for this one, how how do you think Ben Garner will 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 set up, and and what, what do you think? What what how does he try and play at the moment? Well. You've mentioned your struggles, relative struggles against <laughs> yeah. Newport, Wigan, uh, Cheltenham. I would say, actually, we're a lot less dangerous to you. And that's because we do try and play total football. Um, ben Garner is a sort of poor man's pep, really. Um, he wants to play football on the floor. We've got a very good flat pitch at the county ground. So that isn't really going to be a leveller. I don't think there's any weather about. But if anything, the weather would sort of disadvantage us just as much as it would you because <laughs> we, we do play it out from the back. Um, a lot of what he said in his press conference today was about Swindon rather than Man City. Of course, you know, he's, he's watched the last seven or eight games worth of footage for Man City and, you know, he's probably papping himself a little bit. But, um, you know, there's, there's so much to be gained here for Swindon. I, I don't want you to think any of us are kidding ourselves into thinking, you know, anything else is going to happen other than us getting respectfully battered you know I, I think something like a 4-1 or a 5-2 you know would be a marvellous score for Swindon on this night to get a couple of goals showcase what we're all about and actually you know our strength is attack our strength this year hasn't been defence necessarily so um, there's, there's a few players there who will be desperate to make a name for themselves some big characters yeah, I'm interested, Dan, as well. I mean, you hear us talking about the the way that City could rotate and might not rotate for this game. Would you would you be more interested in playing a full strength City side, actually properly test yourself against the the City oh. first team, or would you rather have that that kind of glimmer of hope of maybe the the <laughs> that the, the rotation might be a bit of a hindrance and we could get a, a we could get a surprise win here? <laughs> well, you know, million dollar question, isn't it. Um, when the when the the ball come out the hat, Swindon Town at home to Manchester City, my little four and a half year old who you know this is his first experience of something mega right in the Swindon Town universe. And in the summer he'd sort of fallen in love with England football and the Euros. And I started telling him you know Raheem Sterling, John Stones, Phil Foden, and like you see that look in his eyes like wow, like so yeah I I, I do I do want to see Man City put a strong team out. I want to see Swindon pit their wits against a good side but yeah if, if I was a Manchester City fan you put you, you know it's all about striking a balance you want to play Cole Palmer you want to play um, is it Liam Delap up front you want to play McAtee etc but amongst six or seven you know regulars or you know people that are normally in that match day 18 I think the fact that you can have nine on the bench and you can bring five on is probably quite a good insurance policy for yeah. Pep um, 
that definitely benefits yourselves. Uh, and the fact that we can't drag you guys back to the Etihad uh, in 10 days uh, after the fixture for a replay, you know, it's got to be done on the night. So, yeah, I mean, we're looking for a really big night, huge atmosphere. Um, and actually, this game is really for the fans. You know, we've been for a pretty torturous period under a pretty despicable man owning the football club. And, you know, the fact that we're no longer worrying about being solvent, we're no longer worried about people suing the club for unpaid contracts, we're no longer worried about, you know, zero communication from the club. Like, the focus purely is on having a fantastic night under floodlights and that one glimmer that you always cling on to is that, you know, three-word phrase, magic, Oh, four-word phrase. <laughs> Magic of the cup. <laughs> yeah. Um, Richard, I, I, I'm interested in, you know, from a, a City fan's point of view, like genuinely, I, I remember the days where we used to hope for a good FA Cup run and, and you know, we'd, we'd hope to be, you know, making a, a Wembley semi-final and maybe even a Wembley final. How do you feel being the bad guy these days? Because that's all City are. Like, in the, like nobody is rooting <laughs> for City in this game. There's absolutely nobody that's looking at this fixture thinking, God, I'd love City to win this, other than the City fans. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I, I suppose as a fan, how you feel about it, you sort of accept the hand you dealt, don't you? That's just it, it's the nature of what city are now. Um, that I remember going to Main Road. The one that always stays with me is when City were massive underdogs. I remember going for um, when Leeds were sort of that brilliant Leeds Bowyer, um, Cool, uh, David O'Leary managed team and City had a couple of great moments early on to, to go ahead of them twice and ended up getting sort of taken to the cleaners in the second half. Um, but you sort of, I guess you, you feel as a fan that people want you to win as people would have wanted to, to win to win that game and you feel it the other way around when um you know i suppose the old thing other thing at the moment that everybody says about city that is nonsense is nobody cares about them this kind of game is probably like the one thing where that's true like no nobody's bothered that this is city either there's nobody in the country who's tuning in to watch city in this game that isn't a city fan anybody who's turning it on um, as a neutral is doing it because FA Cup third round, which is one of the best days of the season anyway. And because that chance for an upset is is so tantalising. Um, and you just have to, you accept it, don't you? It's um, it, it would obviously be an amazing win for, for Swindon if they were to get it. I sincerely hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, but you... Yeah, it, it, I, I don't begrudge that we're the bad guys or that the people are going to want us to get beat. That's just all part and parcel of um, of the part of the table, of the part of the pyramid that, that City sit in these days. It's it's fine, isn't it? It's how it should be. People yeah. should want us to lose this game. I was going to say, Dom, if that's the worst we can have, then we're doing all right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting Richard mentioned that Leeds game because that was when Dan was saying about, you know, you'd take sort of a 4-1 or 5-2 that was immediately the game I thought of. I, I, I loved that game because that, that was a point when City were in the midst of the back-to-back promotions under Joe Royal um, and basically sort of got burgled their way out of the championship that year with a <laughs> basically with, with a Division 2 team plus Mark Kennedy just on the crest of a wave. But that Leeds game, like, like you said, that was like the, the Harry Q was one of the best players in the country at that time. They were brilliant. And to take the lead twice against them 
Um, Ian Bishop's goal was an absolute scream. It's so good. It's still one of my favourite City goals. That massively, it. honestly, I that I, was. I don't know why I know this, Dom, but Andy Gray's co-commentary on that goal. For whatever reason, he says um, we know that about Ian Bishop. He has got lovely feet. <laughs> And it just, the, the way he said it made it sound like he was some sort of foot fetishist rather than someone who knew how he could pick a ball well. Ian, Ian Bishop loves a pedicure. I, yeah. I will say the, the Bishop goal was a very rare instance, because I, I was 13 at the time, a very rare instance of absolute limbs in the family stand when that one ended. <laughs> oh, Dom, we, we must, did you sit in the family stand? I did, yeah, near, near the back. Oh my goodness. The scoreboard. We must, right, okay, this isn't a chat for now, but we, we must have sat very near each other in those days. I can't believe I didn't know this. <laughs> this is anyway. not making the edit. But anyway, so F- that was F- great. Fans reunited. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I reckon, like, what Dan was... I remember leaving the ground that day thinking, we've been tanned 5-2. Without Nicky Weaver, it might have been 10. But, God, that was brilliant. And yeah. that that's what that's what I imagine Dan would... Dan would that, that's what Dan wants to be... Obviously, Dan wants to be beating City and it'll be one of the greatest upsets in the history of the FA Cup but that's the feeling you want to leave the ground with I've seen something there and that was great and this is what my club's doing now that, that's what these these occasions are all about and I think it's good for City fans that we kind of have that frame of reference of both sides of it really yeah, yeah, kind of keep your feet on the ground at times like this as well sometimes. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm interested as well. Dom there mentioned, uh, well, a City legend in Nicky Weaver. Um, your goalkeeper, is he away at the African Cup of Nations now? He is, yes. He is the first choice goalkeeper for Ghana, believe it or not. Um, some free sign in from Bristol City in the summer. <laughs> but yeah, so um, Jojo Wallacott, he's uh, he's away. We, we do have a very steady uh, second choice keeper, uh, Lewis Ward. The only other televised game uh, we've had this season, Lewis Ward was man of the match, uh, made a string of fine saves and included a penalty. So I think we're going to need one of those type of afternoons from uh, Mr. Ward. Um, We brought in a a new backup keeper in the week as well, but um, I imagine that's just there to cover Wallacott while he's away. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately for us, we do have a a couple of other injury niggles, um, which are going to slightly hamper us. We're missing, or potentially two of our best midfielders Jack Payne sounds like he's definitely going to be missing and that's a real shame for him he's almost been ever present this year he's um he's been captain in in the absence of our suspended captain Dion Conroy who should come back in on Friday night and then Johnny Williams our sort of trump card the the Welsh international um what he's doing at Swindon Town a lot of people ask me I was going to say um, he either sounds like a Welsh international or a player from the 50s so I'm not sure which one <laughs> which way it was going to go there <laughs> Well, um, yeah, so he, he worked with Ben Garner at Crystal Palace as a youth. Um, he's had a pretty good career, but injury ravaged. And I think he just wanted a uh, safe haven at Swindon where he could work with Garner. He, he sort of starts one game, he's on the bench the next, starts one game, he's on the bench the next. Normally comes off after, after 60 or 70 minutes. Yet. He is a much better player than the fourth tier. So if we can strap him up and get him on the pitch, he does have a little bit of magic in those feet, like Ian Bishop. Um, lovely feet. <laughs> um, and, you know, potentially he is one of the players that could stick a boot through one from, from 25 yards and uh, yeah. I, I was, fly I was, into the back I, of net. I was going to ask, Dan, if, the, if Swindon do pull off the shock, who are the players that would do it? Well, we've got a cheeky monkey up front called Harry McCurdy, who is a character. I recommend ahead of tomorrow night's fixture... Um, you probably have a look at his Instagram feed. He's um, he's entertaining. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, he got four goals against Northampton. Um, which, but I couldn't quite believe it. It was his first home goals, actually. 
despite having made a really big impact since being at Swindon, all of his goals before that seemingly come away. And um, yeah, he's slim, nippy, quite random. Like he's really going to relish, you know, going up against uh, Man City. His strike partner, Tyree Simpson, um, you can't miss him. He's a big boy on loan from Ipswich. Good turn of pace as well. He, after a bit of a slow start, is is now on 10 goals as well. Um, took his goal beautifully against Northampton. So, you know, it's relative again, but the, the front two are a handful. Little and large, good bit of pace. Um, but the problem will probably be the uh, the supply um, without Payne and potentially without Williams too, who apparently hasn't trained this week, hence why he's touch and go but there is um there is a bit of steel and a bit of class further back in the pitch um louis reed probably one of my favorite swindon players for a, a number of years now wears 25 he's only only a dot um but he's just beautifully cultured footballer and gives swindon a lot of class and helps us with the way that ben garner wants to play so yeah the, the width is going to come from a couple of fullbacks they're pretty dynamic got a lot of legs a lot of energy the right wing back, Kessler Hayden, is um, on loan from Aston Villa. I know they have big hopes for him. So this would be the perfect night, uh, Kane, to uh, to turn it on yeah. and uh, teach Cancelo uh, a lesson or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dan, stick around because uh, I, want to, I want you to have a listen to this. Uh, it's almost 20 years uh, exactly since City last played Swindon Town. We mentioned that earlier. Um, Kevin Holock was one of the three headline signings that City have made from the Robins. Uh, he scored in that game uh, the last time City played. We sent Dan Burke on a trip down memory lane to reflect on those players who swapped red for blue. Kevin Horlock is the most recent player to join City directly from Swindon Town. That's sounding. I, I, I had a few options to me, open to me. I, I was obviously scoring a lot of goals at Swindon, and there was a few clubs, well, like most clubs, are interested in goal scoring midfielders. That was Horlock speaking to the podcast a few years ago. He made the move north in 1997 for a fee of around one and a quarter million pounds. Steve McMahon was my manager at, at Swindon. He rang me on the Thursday morning and said, "Look, we've had a bid from Manchester City and." another club we've accepted Man City's offer you can go and speak to him I was a young boy I said what, what would you do he said if I was you he said I would go and speak to Manchester City he said it's a massive club yes they're not in the the top division at the time which there was a, a couple looking at me he said but that don't mean nothing it's a massive club he said just go and speak to him and see what and I drove up in my sponsored Swindon car and signed that evening I'd made my mind up straight away I met Frank Clark and Franny Lee uh, they sold it to me and looking back I'm, I'm that I did. He was Frank Clark's first signing as City boss. It's no secret City were about to implode, and despite being one of the favourites for promotion back to the Premier League, they would soon be relegated to the third tier. I hadn't been at the club when when it had seen the highs a few years before, where they obviously had a few big names and stuff, so I didn't actually see that. And I, I come from a smaller club in Swindon, obviously, so, so to me it was it was big and brand new and, and exciting. And saying I was really looking forward to it. It wasn't until obviously a little bit down the line that we, we did drop down. Then I realised what a fairly big mess we were getting into. In fairness to Hallock, though, he played a big part in getting City out of that mess too. Around ten months after Hallock arrived at May Road, another Swindon connection left. 
Nicky Summerby's three seasons at City had ended in disappointment, but there had been excitement around his arrival back in 1994. We used to come all the time to uh, Main Road, what it was at the time. You know, used to, used to love that, used to go to the Derby games and all that, and there was only one choice for me. He had a couple of other clubs interested. He had Celtic, Villa, Middlesbrough, Ryan Robson was there, and Man City, and there was only one choice for me. Man, you know, Manchester City. The excitement was twofold. Summerby had been part of the Swindon side that had been promoted to the top flight for the first time ever in 1993. And on top of that, his father was a City legend. I had a few teams interested, and you know, Dad can't, couldn't handle anything to do with it. He didn't, he didn't know how to do it. Should he have this much money? Dad should take this much money. And it's just totally different from when he was playing. You see, so you know, he knew that I wanted to go to City. And, uh, and that was, in his situation, all you can do is just sit in the background, really. You know, and you don't know what it's going to be like. It must, be, it must have been a very strange feeling for him, really, because having, having him playing there and all of a sudden having your son playing, playing in the same position as well, and it must have been probably a bit of a weird, bit of a surreal feeling, really. Mike Summerby had made over 400 appearances for City in the 1960s and 70s, in what was, until very recently, the club's most successful era. He, like his son Nicky, had also come to Main Road from the county ground. But he told the podcast that he didn't give his son any advice about his transfer. He spoke to me a little bit about it, but Middlesbrough involved interested at that particular time with uh, Brian Robson, the manager, and Brian was very keen to sign him. Uh, I didn't interfere, I had nothing to do with it at all, but uh, it really, in, in, the, in, the, in the long run, it would have been, I think, better for him to have gone to Middlesbrough. Nicky Summerby never really found his feet at City, but he did do better after he'd moved on from Main Road and transferred to Sunderland. People compared him to me, you know, which, you know and he's not at all like me as a footballer. You know, he's probably more skillful than me and he can cross a good ball. Uh, I could do that, but I was more aggressive, you know. So really, and the comparison is very, you know, is, is always there. So it wasn't easy for Nick, and I had finished by then, so it wasn't easy for Nick. But the real pleasure I had, and my wife had, it was probably in playing for, uh, for Sunderland. Perhaps the pressure of following in his father's footsteps meant that Nicky Summerby's time at City was never going to be a success. Or maybe it was more to do with how turbulent the 1990s were at Main Road. Either way, he says he didn't feel the pressure. People ask me, you know, what's it like, obviously having a famous dad, I don't know any different. My dad's my dad at the end of the day, and that's, that's what it is. But going there, it wasn't, no, it was, for me, I wanted to be a better player than dad. I wasn't, but I wanted to be a better player than him, and that was, you know, if, if I lived my life again, I'd still do it. And the City fans gave me a good crack at it, you know, don't, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, they... You know, I knew what Dad was all about, but it never made any difference at all. For me, there was never never any question at all. On top of those players, there are a few famous names that have pulled on both a City and a Swindon shirt in their careers. James Milner had a loan spell at Swindon in 2003, Shea Given played five games there in 1996, and Steve McMahon moved to the county ground after leaving City in 1994. But it's Mike Summerby, Nicky Summerby and Kevin Horlock who will be the ones most people remember playing for both and for making the journey from Wiltshire to the North West. Hi, this is Kevin Hallock, and you are listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was a look at uh, three signings that City have made from Swindon Town. Um, Dan, I think you might be a little bit too young to remember Nicky Summerby properly because uh, we're about the same age and uh, he's a bit sketchy in my memory at City and he was at Swindon before he was at City. Uh, but Kevin Orlock, uh, is, I know we'll come to Richard in a second because he's one of Richard's all-time favourite City players. <laughs> yeah, super um, Yeah, what, what are your <laughs> memories of him at, uh, at the county ground? Again, formative memories. I started watching Swindon in 94 and uh, Horlock was already at the club by that point. I, I just have vague memories of him originally being touted as a, a left-back. Um, but, 
you know, when you've got a manager like Glenn Hoddle, um, who was able to see things in players that other people didn't see, he was quite quickly turned into uh, sort of a left-sided central midfielder and never really looked back. Uh, I was having a look at his Swindon record earlier. He, you know, a bit like you guys, you know, bobbing up and down the leagues uh, in the late 90s. Hallock played in the Premier League for Swindon, played in what is now the Championship and what is now League One. Um, and in those last couple of years for Swindon, you know, when I was young and starry-eyed and popping along to the county, Hallock developed a real eye for goal. And I think that's what caught a lot of bigger clubs' eyes. So in that um, Championship winning season of what's now League One, Horlock netted 16 goals under Stig McMahon, our player manager, including a very, very popular and memorable hat-trick away at Bristol Rovers, one of our local <laughs> rivals. So, I mean, everybody kind of knew Horlock was a bit good for us. Um, the following season, I think he'd had eight goals in 30-something appearances. And um, sure enough, Man City paid a, a million and a half for his services. Yeah. I just remember being gutted. Yeah, Richard, always going to be. Richard, I, I I have to give you a word on Hallock because you you can't you consistently say if we ever have him on the podcast and there's a chance for you to be on with him, can can we do it? So like, <laughs> like why why Hallock? What what was it about him? Um, so I guess like any answer I can give to this is, I mean, it's a very similar thing that he was in the first City team that I really started watching. So I um, I really started paying attention when I was sort of eight or nine. But my first season ticket was when I was 10. That was when I was sort of a first regular match goer. And Horlock was in that team. It was 98. It was the, the Division 2 season, League 1 as we'd call it now. Um, and just... So, so he's in that sort of formative City memory for me. And again, he just... I think he always stood out as being um as having quality above um above where city were at the time and there's for me i mean i I can't deny that this is a factor really there's something so aesthetically pleasing to me about left-footed players um and he he was a left-footed player in that city team um (laughs) And, you know, he could, he could strike the ball well. He, he took a good penalty. He took a good free kick. Um, so his goals usually tended to be good goals. Like, he wasn't he, he wasn't really knocking them in from the six-yard box, was he, when he was scoring? So, um, or at least that's my, you know, casting my mind back. That's my, my real memory of him. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it's quite a romanticised view of how good he was. Um but he was, I mean, he was good. He was in a City team that was improving and, you know, for, I, I, given that it was a bit of a um, a daft era for City with all the promotions and relegations, he was in a team that when I started going, I watched get two promotions, like back to back. So it's just, there's, there's many, many reasons. He was a key part of, of a really important team to me is, is ultimately yeah. what it comes down to. But he was a good player and he always seemed a, um, he seemed a decent guy. And whenever, um, I know obviously you've done your, your interviews with him in the past and spoke to that team and, and Joe Royal about him and everybody speaks well of him and, and what a joker he was. And, you know, you, you, you like your players to have a bit of personality as well, don't you? I think so. Yeah, that's it for me. Super yeah. Kev, top guy. Dom, have you any memory of Nicky Summerby at City? Are you, why, why was why was Summerby not the success he was at Sunderland? Um, well, he was. It was him and Beagree both played on the wings in that team, and obviously Peter Beagree was 
for I mean, and this is the thing, it's like when you start going so in that team I would have been about I would have been eight or nine when Summerby was there. So you remember things really vividly and that's how things always remain. Peter Beagle was probably good for City for about six weeks, but I always remember him being like this fantastic tricky winger. Whereas Summerby it probably didn't really happen for. He did didn't he Get on the um, on record breaks or something for the hardest shot in football yeah. around that time. Yeah, that was whilst he was at Swindon. I remember yeah. that one. I <laughs> so, it was 90, yeah. 91 mile an hour penalty, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think he was, um, yeah. I don't think it was, he was one of the main culprits, but I think he very much signed for the club at the wrong time when it was going at the free fall. But um, just to go back to Kevin Horlock, um, Rich said about the aesthetically pleasing stuff. Horlock's cross for the for Goats' goal in the promotion game at Blackburn is oh. the sort of thing now that when Kevin De Bruyne does that now, it's like, oh, unbelievable cross. It, that's one of those De Bruyne crosses, but just a mirror, mirror image because it's left-footed. It's absolutely beautiful the way the ball arcs and when it pitches and goal puts it in. It's amazing. And the other thing that's great about Horlock is that he was in that sort of lower league team. But then when Kevin Keegan took over and brought in Berkovic and Bernabia, Horlock was there holding midfielder, just stroking, stroking balls, stroking balls. Kevin Horlock, Bernabia and Berkovic was the midfield three in that promotion team, which was just incredible to watch. A ridic- obviously, they had to get a little bit more pragmatic once they got in the Premier League because they just it was like through traffic for opponents. But that was champagne football that year. And the fact that Horlock could exist in both of those, both the Royal City and Keegan City, I think is, it does speak volumes of that he was a quality player. Yeah, Dan. Uh, just to finish as well, there's a few other names that um, that were mentioned at the end of that feature as well uh, that I I, I I guess had fleeting uh, times at, uh, at Swindon in Shay Given and James Milner. Um, what what were they like? So I think I saw I would have seen every game James Milner played for Swindon. I think it was only five games. Uh, our manager at the time, Andy King, was very good friends with Peter Reid, the then Leeds manager. I don't think he lasted long. Um, but yeah, out of nowhere, we got sent James Milner, who I just remember from the season before scoring a Premier League goal when he was only 15, 16, was it? Something ridiculous. Um, and he was absolutely superb for us. Just You could tell. But we'd had Michael Carrick four or five years before that on loan, and you could just tell with these players. They're just streets above that level, even at 17. He was built like a bull. He could handle himself, two-footed, scored a couple of goals, and what a shame Peter Reid didn't leave him at Swindon for a <laughs> couple of more months, eh? Um, but I, I, I just really want to speak about Mike Summerby. Um, you know, as a student of the game and, you know, a bit of a sort of Swindon Town SWAT, you know, I, I, I do think, we, obviously, he's a huge Man City legend, but I, I often think that the Swindon Town part in his uh, his rise is, is somewhat forgotten about. So I just want to talk about how Mike Summerby, I, I couldn't believe he made 244 Swindon appearances. Yeah. It was part of the club's first ever promotion. Um, came through as a crop of really talented youngsters, which became known as Burt's Babes uh, under manager Burt Head. Um, him and Don Rogers, I mean, I, I hope you've heard of Don Rogers, probably Swindon's greatest ever player, but Summerby's in that company, in that higher echelon. Um and, yeah, I mean, for those two to represent England under 23s whilst they were at Swindon as a third and second tier side, that, that was huge. And I just want to mention the um, the transfer fee, which was £31,000. And I just want to say, gents, I think you got a bit of a bargain there compared <laughs> to Nicky Summerby's 1.5 mil. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Got so, money in them days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, well, while we're on money, we've had no wins on the charity bet for a while. We're still on £1,020 raised for the Man City fans food bank support this season so far. Uh, they collect donations of food and money outside the Etihad ahead of weekend home games to help the Trussell Trust in Manchester. William Hill is giving us each a £10 correct score single on City's matches and it's Swindon up next. So uh, let's start with you, Richard. What's your uh, What's your prediction for this one? Um, I'm going to go for 4 nil to City. 4 nil City is 6-1 to one and uh, £60 if you're right. Dom, let's come to you. What's uh, What's your score? Given what we talked about, strong lineups and also the fact that it'd be nice to win this sort of get involved in the game, I've gone for a 5-1. A 5-1 City win is uh, 16-1 to one and £160 if you're right. And Dan, we'll come to you last. What's, uh, what's your prediction? Hope building on the optimism uh, from bet one to bet two. Well, bet three, I'm going to go for five, five, two. Five, two to City. I hope it comes in because no, it's... it's, it, no, it's no, no. Uh, oh, five, two to Swindon. No, no, no. I'm only joking. <laughs> five, two to Manchester. I was going to say, I've not checked the odds for that one, but I mean, I hope that one comes in just for I the could, money. For a laugh, I did look at the five, two odds the other way for this gag and uh, my betting provider would not provide odds uh, (laughs) that's pretty telling I think excellent Uh, well uh, with William Hill it's 50 to 1 and uh, 500 pounds if uh, City come away from the county ground with a 5-2 win on that occasion Uh, remember you've got to be 18 or over to gamble prices can change and for more on responsible gambling have a look at begambleaware.org Dan from the Loathe Strangers podcast thank you very much for taking some time out to join us today you're very welcome gents thanks for having us best of luck so, time to finish with some listener questions. Get them in for next week on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, Gavin Pearson has uh, emailed in and says, uh, I know we've just had the week and a half of discourse about the depth of City's squad and City's impact on the competitiveness of the league. And that's not a debate I want to force you guys to have again. But are City actually leaving themselves light in the second half of the season by letting Torres leave and, if reports are to be believed, not replacing him? Or can the likes of Delap, Palmer, or McAtee provide the cover that City would? need to compete across three competitions. Dom, what do you reckon? Um, I don't think so, because obviously with, uh, without wanting to rake over the coals of this, of City squad size, City squad is actually, it's got a great depth of quality, but in terms of numbers, it is fairly small. And that's by design. As Guardiola squads have always been like, like, he likes to work with, you know, I, th- I think City have got 17 senior outfield players now. I mean, that there was supposed to be a couple more this season, but Different circumstances mean they're a little bit bit lighter. But I think they'll be fine. Um, and yeah, the likes of Palmer and McAtee will step in because I think if we look at the sort of season, the polarised opinion on how Jack Grealish has been this season and then we talk about how good the likes of Rodri and Cancelo have been after maybe a couple of years finding their feet. If City were to bring in the way City are under Guardiola, if City were to bring in a January sign and sort of pad out the squad numbers a bit, the likelihood is that by the time that signing is up to speed, we're halfway or full, full way through next season anyway. So in the circumstances we're in, with like a really, really talented bunch of young players who you know won the FA Youth Cup the other year, won the Premier League too, that yeah, I think I think they'll be fine. And I think it's probably the way the the squad works, it just makes more sense to have McAtee and Palmer and hopefully the lap if he's fit again as the attacking cover, as it would be sort of going to buy someone. Yeah. I mean, the, the other side of this, Richard, you look at look at the Christmas period, for instance, and, um, you know, all they played a, a, a ton of games in a short space of time. 
they had a couple of injuries here and there. They had a couple of COVID cases here and there. They weren't too keen on on shouting about the COVID cases they had, but we now know Guardiola said after, uh, I think it was after the Arsenal game that they'd, that they'd uh, had players with COVID. Um, if the squad can cope with that, they can cope with, you know, three competitions for the rest of the season, can't they? Yeah, I, I think um, there's, there's things that I would still like to improve about City squad, um, you know, Primarily having a striker would be nice. Um, but I think in terms of framing it as um, does letting Torres go leave them light? I mean, he's not been involved anyway, has he, this season because of his injury, barring the first few games, and they've not looked light then. Um, so I don't see um, I don't see why that should really change anything at this point. I always think with January signings, I think it's it's a really good window if you've got an urgent need that you need to patch um, or, a, or a really obvious weakness and, and there's somebody available who sort of um, ticks the boxes for that. But it's also uh, really easy to be drawn into, um, into signings just because they're available and that sort of opportunistic signing. And it's not what City do. I don't think it's the way to do things. It, it, I don't think it really fits the way Guardiola approaches um, sort of team cohesion um and so I, i'm not concerned about it i think and unless you were talking about like harland becoming available by so you know surprisingly which which isn't going to happen um uh, i just don't see why they'd need to, to dip in in this window unless it was for a player that they'd already planned ahead for in summer that became available early yeah. um so yeah i'm not I'm not worried about the squad. I think if City are to blow the league from here or to come up short in the Champions League again, uh, it'll be for reasons other than squad depth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So that brings this week's Blue Moon podcast to an end. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, then please don't forget to give it a rating and a review in all the usual places. If you'd like to listen to the show without the adverts, or you'd like to get your ears around extra podcasts as well, then you can sign up to our Patreon. The regular show is on that feed without the commercials at the end of every week. And there's a whole host of bonus formats released every Monday as well. Last Monday, it was a City Heaven, City Hell episode, looking at four matches between City and QPR. Yes, the very obvious games were involved. Uh, all of that is yours every week for just £2 each month. For all the details or to sign up, just take a look at patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Special thanks to today's guests, Richard Burns. Thank you very much. And Don Farrell. Thank you, mate. I'll be back next week to preview the match with Chelsea. See you then. the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast